Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Todd Moss, Executive Director of the Energy for Growth Hub and a non-resident fellow at the Baker Institute at Rice University. Todd has worked for years on expanding access to energy around the world, and particularly in Africa. On today's episode, I'll ask him about the current strategies that countries, companies, and international institutions are taking to expand access in Africa. We'll also talk about how COVID-19 is affecting these efforts, along with the intersection between expanding energy access and mitigating climate change. Stay with us. Okay, Todd Moss from the Energy for Growth Hub and the Baker Institute at Rice University. Welcome back to Resources Radio. Thanks so much for coming back on. You are a glutton for punishment. Oh, great to be with you, Daniel. So, Todd, when we had you on, gosh, I I guess it was about a year ago, we talked a little bit about the concept of the resource curse. We talked about Guyana and we talked about energy access. Uh, Today, we're going to focus on energy access, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, and we're going to talk about whether and how uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the recession that has accompanied it uh, might affect energy access in that part of the world. But before we kind of get into the topic itself, uh, as you'll know, we always ask our guests how they got into uh, the topic that we're discussing. So I just want to ask you how you got interested in particular in these issues of energy poverty and energy access around the world. Yeah, I I came at this issue, I think, from the opposite of of how most people arrive at energy. So I wasn't an engineer. Um, I was an economist that by accident wound up working in the State Department uh, as a diplomat. And something that struck me was whenever I was talking to our African allies about all of the things the United States wants our partners to do, um, they always had a, a very common response of what they would like from the United States. And it was almost always infrastructure investment, and very often it was in the power sector. Um, And I was really struck at how important that seemed to be to uh, virtually all of our African allies. So when I left state and went back to my job at uh, Think Tank, the Center for Global Development, I set up uh, an energy program focused on ways that the international community could fight energy poverty and support energy ambitions uh, in Africa. So that was kind of uh, an accidental way. Um, And then, you know, as I was doing work, like a typical economist at a think tank, I was playing with data and looking at all kinds of comparisons of electricity consumption. And I remember one weekend I was looking at data that was saying that, you know, in the United States, we use about 13,000 kilowatt hours a person a year. And well, in Nigeria, it was only 150 and in Ghana, it was only 400. And it seemed like big differences, but it didn't really mean very much to me. But later that day, I had to go with my family to buy a refrigerator. Um, and um, you know, those yellow energy star tags on the fridge, on that, fr- on that tag, it said that the fridge I was buying was 450 kilowatt hours a year. And I thought, oh my gosh, my fridge is, is going to consume more than, than most people living in Africa. And that for me was like the moment that where kind of um, I really got the passion about uh, a lot of the issues that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, 
Yeah, well, those energy stickers, you know, apparently somebody out there is reading them. (laughs) That's good news. Um, So when we think about energy access, you know, when I I think about it, at least over the last 10 or 20 years, there's a lot of um, kind of good news to tell uh, about how energy access has expanded around the world, particularly in, you know, places like China, India, other parts of Asia. Before we talk and focus on Africa, which is what we're going to do for most of the episode, can you talk a little bit about the trends of energy access growth uh, and describe some of their key drivers over the last, let's say, 10, 20 years? Sure. So, you know, historically, electrification and I know we're talking about energy, but let's let's talk specifically about electricity. Electrification has been driven in most places first by industrialization. Um, you know, the typical path has been to start with uh, big power for industry, for large cities. You build a grid, and over time, you expand that grid, and eventually, uh, you reach farms. And virtually everywhere, rural electrification was always last. Um, And as people uh, had jobs and industry grew and incomes rose, then you started to see um, that driving higher residential demand for electricity because now people can afford appliances and things that that use electricity. Um, And this pattern has been common for most of the West, certainly for the United States and Europe, and then largely followed by China and large parts of Asia, even, even Vietnam is more or less following this path. Now, India has been a little bit different. Um, they have partially been following that model, but, but as a kind of unintended benefit of being somewhat late, uh, people in rural areas of India now no longer have to wait for the grid to finally arrive. Um, You can now, you know, there are now things like these very basic uh, solar systems for homes. uh, And we have new models of of distributed uh, energy like mini grids that can power some kinds of small industry. Uh, And this is super exciting, especially India is an incredibly dynamic, exciting uh, energy market. Um, But it's not what I think many people think it is. Now, these new technologies and business models, they do... Um, uh, they allow people to have certain electricity systems far earlier than they would have had in the past. They'd have to wait. And this is absolutely wonderful. Uh, But there's a big caveat here, which is that these small solar home systems can really only deliver very basic power. They they can't power machinery or um, anything, you know, certainly anything with significant heating or cooling is is out. uh, so it's definitely some of these new systems are a wonderful first step on an energy ladder for the very poor, and especially for rural isolated communities where the grid is is very far away. But it's really only a first step. Uh, and even with mini grids, which are kind of like small utilities for a neighborhood or a village, they have far more capacity and they can even in many places be more reliable than national grids. But so far, the cost of electricity for mini grids is many, many times higher than grid power. In Africa, which I know we're gonna talk about in a second, you know, a mini grid can cost 10 times what the, what the national grid will cost per kilowatt hour. So, so it's fine for certain industries and certain uses, but it's not globally competitive. And so it might work for local isolated markets, but it, you know, the, some of these models, they won't work for anything that's very energy reliant that you would hope to export and be globally competitive. Right, that makes sense. So, so let's turn now to to Africa. And um, if my 
recollection is right and the background readings that I was doing uh, are accurate, you know, it seems like sub-Saharan Africa in particular is a part of the world where we see some of the highest rates of energy poverty uh, or, or lack of access to electricity. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some of the major challenges are to expanding access in that part of the world? Yeah, so so Africa is facing some of the problems and issues I just mentioned in India. It's just far more extreme. Um, so today, uh, almost 600 million people, more than half of the population, lack access to any modern electricity at all. Uh, and this is very bad, um, of course. But the, the bigger picture is, is actually even worse. So many people who might technically be counted by the UN as having access to energy, they might just have a solar lantern or some very small system with a couple of lights. Um, they don't have access to the energy that you'd need to run most appliances or any machine that you would use like on your job. Um, and it's even worse for those sometimes who have grid power because grid power um, is almost always in Africa very unreliable. Uh, and this is true in every market in Africa, including South Africa. Um, and it also means the, the unreliability of grid power in Africa also means that this is a problem not just for people at home, but for industry and commerce. So most businesses rely on low cost, reliable power. And it's not just steel mills or factories. You know, if we think about the new digital economy, how do you run a data center without cheap 24 seven electricity? You can't. Um, so th these are some of the some of the big challenges. Now, of course, Africa is 54 different countries, so some of the issues are different country to country, but maybe I'll just highlight a couple of issues that are pretty common across the continent. Um, so one is, um, is just a general lack of infrastructure. Uh, you know, generation, power generation is generally pretty easy to do and good projects can, can quickly get financed and built, but it's the transmission and distribution components that are far harder. And we're seeing a lot of countries right now that have an ability to bring on a lot of generation, but it's really the transmission that's now the bottleneck. Um, related to this, a lot of countries, most countries, nearly all countries in Africa, have set the electricity tariffs below the cost recovery for obvious political reasons. But what this means in most places is that every kilowatt hour uh, sold actually loses money for the utility. So you can imagine the effect that that has on, uh, on investment. And that's one of the reasons that, that you've got an infrastructure deficit is that the utilities that should be building that are all under severe financial strain. Um, and you know, the, the international community has a big role uh, in Africa too. They're active in a lot of markets in the power sector. And we've seen a lot of really uh, positive interest in financing power projects. There's an initiative of the U.S. government called Power Africa, which President Obama started in 2013 and, and President Trump has continued. And it's actually been a pretty big success. And I hope over time it will get even bigger. Um, but, you know, carrying on some of the, the issues I raised earlier, you know, the donor and some of the investor communities, I think, have, in my opinion, I think they've oversold the, um, the uh, potential of some of the off-grid renewable models. There's a, there's a lot of hype around leapfrogging. 
Um, but building an energy system that can support modern lifestyles and a modern globally competitive economy is, is far more complicated than finding a way to put a solar panel on every roof. Um, you know, solar home systems, I don't want to take anything away from the off-grid market. It's very dynamic and it's fantastic for, for many energy services and they're reaching communities um, that are massively underserved. But it's not useful for everything that we need in energy uh, sector to do. Um, and I often think of uh, transportation as, uh, as a useful analogy. We need a very diverse, robust transportation system uh, for our lives and for our economy. Um, and, you know, bicycles are great. I love my bike. It's cheap. It's easy. It's clean. I can get around with no problem. Um, and we can make bikes really efficient. We can make high-tech e-bikes. We can do all kinds of things. But no matter what we do, bicycles will always be useless for hauling cargo across the country. Um, we need different types of transportation for different uses, and we need different types of energy systems for different energy services as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And if I want to, not that I can do this today, but if I want to go to Paris, my bike's probably not going to get me there. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Certainly not in today's <laughs> times. Um, so let's talk now about kind of some recent developments in Africa, and, and then we'll talk about COVID-19 and how that might be affecting things. You mentioned the U.S.'s Power Africa initiative. Um, are there uh, some other major initiatives that you want to highlight that are you know, currently underway, expanding energy access in Africa. You know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the Belted Road Initiative um, uh, from from coming out of China. Uh, but I'm sure there are also, you know, domestic initiatives and other international or intergovernmental initiatives. Can you, um, you know, maybe highlight a couple other uh, efforts that are currently underway to expand energy access? So sitting above any individual government or agency effort, first it, are, are the sustainable development goals. And we do have uh, SDG number seven, which is to deliver affordable, reliable, sustainable, modern energy for all by 2030. This is a brilliant goal and it's actually helped to motivate a lot of agencies to get into the power sector. If, if we think back uh, 10 or 20 years, most of the community was not in this sector at all. So that's been a very positive sort of overarching uh, effort. And as part of that, there, there's, a, there's a, an initiative within the UN called Sustainable Energy for All, or SE for All. And a, an exciting development is they've got a brand new leader of that effort, a dynamic uh, woman from Nigeria named Damilola Ogunbiyi. And I'm, I'm actually watching her settle into this new job. I'm, I'm very optimistic that she's going to play a role in galvanizing more international support for uh, last mile investments for those final 600 million people in Africa and roughly 200 million people around the world that have no modern energy for all. And I'm also really um, enthusiastic that she will help to raise the bar on energy goals around the world so it can also help to drive job creation and economic growth in all parts of the world. So, so that's a kind of global chapeau that I think is very positive. Um, there are a lot of development finance institutions um, that um, are like Power Africa using different tools to support power transactions. Um, the British have an agency called the CDC Group that um, just launched a, uh, an interesting investment platform focused on electricity transmission. 
the Germans, French, Danish, most of the European governments all have a development finance institution that's investing in the energy sector. Even Canada just launched their own. It's called FinDev Canada, and we'll watch to see, see what they do. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Belt Road uh, Initiative. China has, is, has been for a long time and now is very active in, in building and financing power stations in all of the surrounding infrastructure. Um, in many places, this is positive. One absolutely positive effect of the Chinese uh, initiative is that it has spurred competition um, among the other agencies to, to get into the sector. Um, the U.S. has a new um, uh, development finance institution called uh, the DFC, um, which just opened its doors about five or six months ago. And we have that agency in large part because the U.S. saw what China was doing and, and wanted to, uh, to respond. And I think it's important to highlight the, the active role of the private sector. Um, and, you know, GE has, has a big uh, Africa business. They've got an office in Nairobi. And I, I see that Siemens, uh, the German firm, just signed a, a major deal uh, to help expand the power system in Nigeria. So we are seeing a range of financial uh, and private sector institutions start to get into the African power space. And I think that's that's very positive. Mm -hmm. Great. That's really helpful. So now I'm going to ask you a question that's probably impossible to answer for several reasons. Um, the, so Those here's the, the question. Questions. Yeah. So here's the question. And then maybe I'll outline <laughs> at least some of the caveats. Um, sure. So so the question is, you know, how how do you think COVID-19 is affecting these initiatives and is likely to affect them uh, in the years to come? And obviously the huge uncertainties here are, we don't know how long the pandemic is going to be with us. Uh, we don't know the exact economic toll it's going to take. We don't know how those are gonna play out over time. We don't know what governments are gonna do in response in terms of investment. Uh, and we don't know uh, what private sector actors are gonna do uh, with any precision. Uh, but I'm just very interested in hearing your reflections on you know, what this uh, is meaning today, uh, given your extensive contacts in the area and what it might mean for tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, the, the most immediate takeaway is that the COVID uh, pandemic and especially the effects of the lockdown and the global recession have really, I think, thrown a very stark and harsh light on, uh, on energy as a source of global inequality. Um, you know, we are all very reliant on energy in our homes, being able to uh, respond to what's going on in the world. And, you know, literally billions of people around the world don't have that same, uh, that, that same capability. And I was looking at, at the data uh, recently, and, you know, just to give you an example of how stark the differences are, uh, Californians, just, just people in California... Uh, use more electricity playing video games than the entire country of Kenya uses. And that's just Californians just playing video games, right? And pools and hot tubs in California use more electricity than the entire country of Senegal. So, you know, I do not worry that I'm not going to have enough electricity to run air conditioning in my house. It's 95 degrees uh, where I am uh, today. My air conditioning is cranking as we speak. I'm not worried about that, but for billions of people, they don't—they just don't have that luxury. And I think the global crisis is 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 put that in 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 stark contrast. Um, if we think about how the recession—not so much the pandemic, but the 
the pandemic-induced recession, how that's hurting the energy sector, there, there's, there's a couple of effects we're already starting to see. So I had mentioned earlier that utilities in Africa are under uh, financial stress. Well, this is putting them all under even more financial strain. Uh, in Nigeria, in response to COVID, they've announced free electricity for three months. So if the utility was bankrupt before, it's in even a deeper hole now. Um, the decline in global oil prices um, and worries in the gas sector is putting many large infrastructure projects in Africa on hold. I wouldn't say that, that anything's been canceled yet, but we've seen some delays. Um, and certainly the effect, the knock-on effect of the rising cost of capital in emerging markets um, has, is going to make all of these projects uh, more expensive. So that's certainly going to have a ripple effect uh, down the line. Um, but when I think about the intersection of the energy sector and what the, the, the global crisis right now, I think what's really interesting is sort of the reverse of your question. Um, not how the pandemic is affecting energy, but how is energy going to be essential to recovery, uh, economic recovery, and to building future resilience? Um, so this global slowdown has hurt people's lives and especially their livelihoods. And it's not just in the U.S. where unemployment is high. We're seeing that around the world. And of course, the poorest people have the, the least capability to, to um, go without earning income. Uh, and people obviously need power to generate income and to create jobs. And if we just think about remote working as the most obvious example of this, you need electricity and you need the Internet. Um, and if you don't have electricity, uh, you can't obviously work uh, remotely. Um, and what does the Internet run on? The Internet runs on a lot of electricity. So I think that building robust, functional, modern, adaptable power systems is going to be seen, I hope, as part of building global resilience and helping uh, to uh, dig the, um, the world out of the, the hole that we're in. Yeah. So that gives us a great sense of what's happening in today's market and how COVID-19 might be shaping you know, the next round or, or how energy, as you've described, how the energy system might be able to shape a recovery. When you look ahead, um, what are some of the policies or programs, either ones that you've already discussed or new ones that might be on the horizon that you think might be helpful in expanding energy access in the context of, um, of a recovery? Yeah, so as we think about building um, modern power systems, especially for regions like Sub-Saharan Africa, um, I think an, a very important focus has got to be um, not just reaching that last mile, but really driving down the costs of power for industry and commerce. If it, the cost question is just cannot be avoided given the, the global economy and the nature of global supply chains. So really trying to focus on cost. And second, investing a lot in reliability. And this means both the hardware and the software to manage a flexible grid um, you know, especially as countries want to take advantage of very cheap solar and increasingly cheap wind, you need to have a system that can handle more intermittent renewables. And very few countries have the capability uh, to do that. Um, and then the last thing is that, you know, the new technology um, is really enables us to build power systems that are far smarter than what we have done in the past. 
So we can use things like remote sensors and satellite imagery and big data to build systems that meet the development goals of countries. And just as one example, you know, where, you know, if you're a energy minister and you've got resources for the next, you can build one more transmission line or one more power plant. You can use these tools to figure out where to put that, which will give you the biggest return. Um, and this is not just for the grid. It's actually also important for the off-grid sector because the more clarity you can get around electricity planning, it allows you to seed other areas to the off-grid sector. So one of the biggest problems of trying to develop a mini-grid market or an off-grid market is that you're worried that maybe next year um, the utility is going to come in with a power line and destroy your market. Um, so we can certainly do this uh, far more efficiently using these new technologies today than was even remotely possible in the past. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, one related question is, as you know, as we think about building out the grid uh, in Africa or really anywhere around the world, um, one of the questions that often comes up, and it's a it's it's a sort of fraught question. Um, is whether there's a potential tension between expanding energy access and, and limiting CO2 emissions. I think pretty much everyone is excited about the idea of expanding energy access to everyone in the world uh, and meeting those sustainable development goals that you discussed. Um, and it's, you know, that hope is often paired with the desire that the, those energy needs are met with clean energy uh, compared with you know, other countries like China or the US that have developed with a more carbon intensive model. Um, so from your perspective, are those goals, are those two goals uh, in any tension? Uh, and if they are, like, is that even the right way to think about the problem? Yeah. So if you define energy access down to, you know, everyone gets a light bulb at home, then there's obviously no trade-off there. Um, if you're actually thinking that, that truly modern energy access is about living in a high-energy modern economy and everyone living a modern lifestyle and working in a modern high-energy economy, then you actually do start to have some trade-offs. Um, but I think you know, there's a couple of facts that we should start with when we think about what does that mean for um, for the energy choices that Africa makes and the role of the international community there. The first fact to start from is that today, Africa is basically not emitting um, greenhouse gases. And if you accept the, the notion of a carbon budget, you know, Africa is hardly using anything in, in the carbon budget. Um, and Africa also you know, is already mostly using clean energy today. Um, and the future is mostly going to be clean energy. There's tremendous untapped wind and solar. Uh, Kenya today is a good example. Most of their electricity is coming from geothermal sources. Ethiopia, a big, fast-growing country, it's nearly all of their electricity is, is hydro. Um, and I think another distinction when we do think about uh, carbon is not to think of all fossils the same. So coal is obviously the worst from virtually every perspective environmentally, um, but coal in Africa in, in my view, it's is essentially dead. So South Africa has a big coal problem that they're going to struggle to resolve right now. But outside of South Africa, you know, there's a little bit of coal in Botswana, a tiny country. There might be, maybe there'll be one coal project in Zimbabwe sometime in the next five years. But I just don't see coal being any part of Africa's energy future. Um, so it's not really an issue. 
it's really natural gas, which I think is the interesting case and where this, this potential um, uh, trade-off comes into play. And here, you know, lots of African countries have natural gas. Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, you know, Mo Mozambique has just had an absolutely massive uh, natural gas find. Um, so Africa feels that this is a resource they have. We've seen a lot of Western companies investing in African gas. Um, even in the middle of COVID, uh, Total has committed to a huge new investment in, in LNG in Mozambique. Um, and of course, you know, the West itself is increasing its use of natural gas. Um, you know, the U.S. today has about 3,300 power plants that run on some kind of fossil fuel. Most of that is gas, and gas is an increasing share of that power. Now, in contrast to those 3,000 plus plants in the U.S., Kenya today has eight power plants running on a fossil fuel, most of it heavy oil, which is dirty. Um, uh, and Nigeria, which is a huge country of 200 million people and will be bigger than the United States sometime in the next 20 years, um, they have just 18 power plants versus our 3,300. So, um, you know, that we have to put gas in, in a little bit of uh, perspective. Um, and I think importantly, for those of us that hope that Africa has a has a cleaner energy future than we have. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's most of us. You know, natural gas is actually very well suited to pair with wind and solar because of both its financial model and the, its technical ability to ramp up quickly. So if you want Africa to have a lot more wind and solar, you want it to be a very high proportion uh, of their energy mix, gas is actually an ideal match to help enable that higher renewables penetration. And I think big picture, you know, of course, we want to do everything we can to mitigate climate related emissions. But natural gas in Africa is not really a big climate issue from a global perspective. Um, and just give you one example of this is if all of sub-Saharan Africa tripled electricity consumption overnight, if we could magically triple electricity consumption tomorrow and we did it entirely with natural gas, uh, that would produce the equivalent of about 1% of global emissions. So the continent is just starting from such a small base and the idea of where it's headed in the next few years it's just not a factor given the tremendous size of you know, China's economy, India's economy, Europe's economy, the United States. And so you know, I know some people want to lump coal and gas and try to maybe ban finance for all fossil fuels, but this doesn't actually make sense from an economic standpoint. It definitely doesn't make sense from a development or climate standpoint. And I think the ethical issues uh, are extremely fraught, and we should be we should be very 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 cautious about that. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about the the equity issues involved in the fairness and who who has developed in the past, and as you say, who's responsible for the bulk of historical emissions, let alone uh, modern day emissions, it really puts things in perspective. Absolutely. So thank you, uh, Todd, once again for joining us uh, to uh, to talk about energy access and so many complicated issues. I know, as always, we're just scratching the surface here, but but hopefully this um, you know piques people's interests and encourages them to learn more. Um, I'd like to close it out with our final question that we ask all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. And um, 
You know, for me, as well as I imagine many of our listeners, it's been a little hard to concentrate on work the last week or two. Um, the, the protests um, over the murder of George Floyd and so many other um, horrible events that we've seen over the last couple of weeks in the U.S. have just really just made it hard uh, to uh, to keep your mind on work. And so for me, I've actually been rereading uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates's book, Between the World and Me, which is um, just a wonderful sort of open letter to his son about what it's like growing up black uh, in the United States. And um, it's been certainly not a balm, uh, but it helps, uh, again, put things in perspective for me to try to understand some of the um, you know deep feelings that people are feeling out there. Um, I should note that we're recording today on uh, June 3rd, 2020. And so, you know, things may change by the time this episode airs. But, you know, that's what I'm thinking about. Uh, how about you, Todd? What's on the top of your stack? So I found, you know, reading about COVID and some of the other crises facing us a little overwhelming. So I've been trying to escape some of that. And I know everyone's streaming uh, Netflix um, but the series that I have really enjoyed, this is going to show you what an energy nerd I am, um, is a just released uh, six part series called Power Trip, the story of energy, which is uh, inspired by Michael Weber's book, Power Trip. And Michael, um, who people may know, was uh, with the Energy Institute at UT Austin and now is the chief science and technology officer at Angie, the big uh, global energy company. Um, his series has just dropped. Um, it's on PBS and I was watching it on Amazon Prime. I think it's on Apple also. But it's a really beautiful and well done uh, series, which um, it runs through how energy is essential to water, food, wealth, cities, transportation, and war. Um, and if you don't know Michael, he's he, he's a wonderful communicator, and it's, it talks about complex energy issues in a, in a highly uh, accessible way. Um, and even though I eat, live, and breathe energy issues every day, I, I absolutely loved it, and I, I'd encourage people to, to take a look at, at Power Trip. That's a great recommendation. I, I read the book, uh, but now I need to see the movie. Um, and uh, we've had several of Michael's former students on the show. We've never actually had Michael on, on the show, so we'll have to get him on here sometime soon. Yeah, he'll be a great guest. Yeah, great. Well, once again, Todd Moss from the Energy for Growth Hub, uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. Be safe. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. 